From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Developers continue to clear-cut natural areas in New Hanover, Pender, and Brunswick counties as the regional human population of southeastern North Carolina climbs and developers make room for new buildings, plants, animals, and green spaces for humans are disappearing. Species like coyotes and foxes are better at adjusting to a more urban life with humans, but not every species can adapt. In New Hanover County, the suicide rate nearly doubled from 2021 to 2022. And while we can't draw a definitive correlation between that statistic and the amount of time people are spending in nature, it does raise a legitimate question about the choices we're making to either support or destroy our own quality of life. The research to support the importance of the outdoors, nature, to human health is abundant. In fact, in 2022... The National Institutes of Health published a review of the studies which, unsurprisingly, support the conclusion that exposure to nature is profoundly beneficial to mental health. That same review by the NIH also found that being outside in blue and green spaces supports physical health and cognitive health. The numbers speak loudly. Mental health outcomes improved across 98% of studies, while physical and cognitive health outcomes showed improvement across 83% and 75% of studies, respectively. And, of course, we will link to that information. If we know that we need nature to live a healthier life, and if a key quality of life measurement is mental, physical, and cognitive health, are we doing enough to preserve natural areas. Today, we're going to take a closer look at some of the changes we're seeing in southeastern North Carolina and get some ideas on how we might better manage conservation, not just for the sake of the squirrels and the raccoons, but selfishly for us. Rachel Urbanek is a certified wildlife biologist. She is also chair of the Department of Environmental Sciences, where she is a professor of wildlife ecology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She joins me now. Dr. Urbanek, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have you back with us. About five years ago, you or more than that now, you educated our listeners about the centerbizing of of wildlife. You've said to me that a a lack of natural areas affects all of us. What are some of the ways you see that diminishing natural areas is affecting us here in the Cape Fear region? Um, Well, I I like the way that you started the program, for one, um, because it was a good synopsis of how um, mental health issues and physical health issues are connected to you know, people's experiences outside. Um, We may have talked about this five years ago, um, but there is a a disorder actually called uh, nature deficit disorder. Um, And um, the person who kind of first wrote about it and coined that term was a man by name Richard Louvre. And um, 
he's got this great book um, called Nature Deficit Disorder. And what it basically does is it, it says that there's a lot of issues, both behavioral issues and mental issues, um, that we're seeing throughout the United States and different parts of the world, too, where it's connected to the human's um, basically lack of connection to the outdoors. We're spending a lot more time indoors. We're spending more time on screens. Um, and as you said and so eloquently in the beginning of the program, you know, there's lots and lots of research that shows that our cognitive abilities increase, our health overall increases. Um, and with that, then, you know, happiness increases if you're if you're your your brain's clear and you're thinking and you feel healthy, then, you know, overall it would go to think that, you know, know, you would be happier overall with a better quality of life. Um, Can you just point to some of those specific issues? Like you said, um, mental and behavioral. Mm -hmm. So uh, that makes me think anxiety mm -hmm. might go up. What, what are some of the other issues or even behavioral issues? So what I recall from um, Richard Louv's, uh book, um, and it's been a while, so I'd have to go back and look at specific things, but I do recall that there was uh, connections to um, an increase in things like ADHD, um, anxiety for certain. Um, so those are things in terms of behavior and mental. Um, but then... Um, you know, just stress in general. Um, I even tell students at UNCW, you know, that especially this time of year when it's winter. So I'm like, go outside, you know, just, you know, think about it. When's the last time that you went and took a walk? And or if you had a lot of stress or you had a lot of anxiety, just spend some time and get some fresh air or just sit out there and just listen and just be still for a little bit. And you end up feeling a lot better. Um, you clear your brain and maybe you work out some of your problems, whether it's, you know, how to tackle this big assignment to, you know, something else that's going on in your life. It, it, there's something about being outside and just being out in nature that connects cognitively to humans. That's certainly not my expertise. <laughs> Wildlife is. But, um, but definitely I I feel that when I go outside and I know that when I talk to students about these connections that I've read about, um, you know, everybody kind of recognizes it too, being like, that's true. When I do go outside for a walk, I feel a lot better about things or I can clear my brain or I can, you know, relax a little bit more about something. Are you seeing a diminishment of younger folks getting outside? I mean, being in the Department of Environmental Sciences at UNCW, I would think you have a lot of outdoor enthusiasts. <laughs> but can you see a difference between, say, today and, I don't know, five years ago? Um, I think that's, yeah, that's difficult to do in environmental sciences because people come into the environmental sciences because they want to be outside. Um, you know, it's funny, a lot of students come to UNCW and um, they're, you know, like most students, they don't know what they want to do. They, they like sciences or they, you know, I know a lot of students that work for me, um, they're like, oh, I like animals. And then they're not sure if they want to do pure bio or they're, what is environmental sciences? Um, and the students that are in our department are the ones that want to be outside all the time. Um, you know, they're they're not necessarily, you know, the lab people. They don't want to look through microscopes. They're okay doing that every once in a while, but they want to be out and about doing that. So for me, I don't see much of a difference. But um, So is it fair to say you have the best adjusted students possibly on campus <laughs> because they're all outdoor enthusiasts? Um, you know, they all have their concerns, right? You know? yeah. <laughs> so 
know? <laughs> well, you sent me a study that was actually conducted by one of your students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you said during the pandemic, we saw all of these kind of anecdotal stories that were really fun about how since humans were not driving around as much and people were hunkering down and sheltering in place to not spread COVID, there was a wild story about goats in Wales eating vegetation from people's window boxes and uh, lions in South Africa lying in the road because there was no traffic. And even in the national parks here, we heard about park rangers saying they were seeing more wildlife because there just wasn't any traffic in the parks. But you said there were actually conflicting studies on that front about how wildlife were responding to the pandemic and human changes. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that came out during the pandemic in terms of wildlife and, you know, nature taking back the areas was anecdotal. Um, You know, there were a few studies um, that said, oh, humans are not being um, humans aren't going out as much because they're staying inside, and then that's why the wildlife are coming back. Um, and there was definitely conflicting studies. Definitely, wildlife were moving around differently, but there was no study um, that actually quantified well, what did humans do. So the paper that I had sent you um, was actually an undergraduate. She was um, she her name was Katie Barton. She just graduated in December twenty twenty two. And, um, or no, we're 2024 now. She graduated in 2023. I don't even know what year it is. Congratulations, Katie. (laughs) She just graduated. Um, But Katie actually is a phenomenal student. She was in my lab since she was a freshman. And um, when we started working with this project with Dr. Brian Arbogast in bio, um, you know, we, we started saying, well, you know, this is a perfect time when the campus is, you know, making going on through these changes, just like, you know, New Hanover County is, the area at large in the world, right? So the campus was kind of a microcosm for what was happening. And it certainly was. And so we had this opportunity where we can actually track our people moving and then also track and say, well, what are the animals doing? Um, and kind of giving a better idea of, you know, is this anecdotal? Because, you know, maybe humans aren't going out. We are told to stay inside, right? We are told to hunker down and don't go out of your tribe and or pod. I can't. There's so many different terms we had back then. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, you know, that's what we ended up looking at. We only we not only quantified what humans were doing on the campus of UNCW, but we also quantified what the animals were doing. How did you do that? So we used uh, game cameras, so wildlife game cameras. Um, hunters and residents sometimes and even now use them just to capture wildlife on their property. Um, but it's one of the most uh, popular non-invasive ways to monitor wildlife worldwide. And so uh, we put out 19 cameras on the wooded areas um, that were open to the public and free and not closed in. So we weren't on. There's a wildflower preserve on campus. We didn't put it in there because there's only one way in and one way out, even though there was wildlife in there. We wanted area access. And so UNCW campus, for those listeners who aren't listening, who who aren't familiar with it, there's about – about 100 acres that is open. It's a, an old pine forest, a savanna, and there's lots of trails through it because not only our students and our faculty and staff use it, but then the residents and the neighborhoods around campus also use it as well. So we put these cameras out there and we let them out for about two months. And we, poor Katie, <laughs> I say we, but poor Katie, <laughs> she's a trooper. Um, she went through every single one of those images and said, well, how many humans are there? How many animals are there? <laughs> 
Okay, and we're going to find out what she discovered when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration with UNCW wildlife biologist Rachel Urbanic. Still ahead, we'll also find out how and why some species are adapting to the suburbs and how humans might consider some adaptations. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. UNCW wildlife biologist Rachel Urbanek studies how humans and wildlife interact, particularly in an increasingly urbanized environment. And Dr. Urbanek, just before we went to break, you were explaining how Katie Barton, this undergraduate student who conducted a study on human and wildlife activity in an open natural area on the UNCW campus, what she discovered about that activity during the pandemic when we anecdotally were hearing humans are hunkered down and wildlife are out and about because there are no people. But what did she find with her cameras? Yeah, so um, what she and I found um, was that um, people weren't hunkered down, (laughs) basically. Um, You know, we have this nice timeline of what happened on campus in terms of the freshmen having to move to single dorms, to leaving campus or and everybody else who was living on campus having to leave and, you know, classes being moved online and all the things that followed that time. And, um, So over the nine weeks that we had our cameras out, we had these milestones of different things that was happening in terms of the policy on campus as it related to the pandemic. And what was really interesting was that about week four, um, when most people were either off campus or uh, in single dorms and, you know, everybody was supposed to be really hunkering down and separating themselves, we saw this huge uptick in people on our cameras. So, um, you know, Katie did a great job um, looking into it and thinking about it broadly because um, one of her interests um, was really kind of combining human behavior with what we were seeing. And, um, you know, so I told her, I'm like, you're going to have to step out of the wildlife world and try to think about humans a little bit more. And so um, she started going into, the, you know, more and more literature about, you know, psychology of humans and, you know, isolation and things of that nature, something that she never thought she'd have to go down when she's thinking about wildlife, <laughs> right? And um, the stuff that she uncovered and we ended up kind of searching through and kind of discussing was that um, it kind of made sense, especially for young adults who are first going to college. You know, freshmen and sophomores have to be on campus um, at UNCW. And so some of these people are um, never been away from home. And then they start college and then the pandemic hits and they're 
this whole idea of what college was in the, going to be in their head is not, right? Yeah. And so they stay on campus and they're searching just to get out. And, you know, we, we have to conjecture because we, we didn't interview anybody. We didn't go and say, well, why did you go outside? We have no idea who any of these people are because they're just legs because the cameras are set really low to the ground. So we see like feet and legs and dogs. But this <laughs> doesn't mean that they weren't complying though, right? No. Because being outside was one of the things that people could do. One of the, being outside is one of the things that you could do. That was one of the things that said that was more safe than being even inside six feet away, right? Everybody remembers that six foot distance. And so it, we think that that was actually what was happening was that more and more people, in order to be able to socialize, because humans are naturally a social animal, um, they just said, OK, I'm going to start going outside. And the community probably, the community continued to use, you know, that piece of the property, too. We see every time I'm up there with students or just walking through um, to get classes together that I'm taking out there, I, meet, I run into local residents and community members all the time as well. So I think that was ended up being a good place for people to escape, get out of their house and feel a little bit of normality. Now, so we saw instead of having everybody hunkering down, we saw some people trying to get out and trying to kind of at least be able to see other people. And then we did see an uptick in also images of overall of how many animals. And so you might be thinking, okay, well, wait a second. We were supposed to see more animals and less humans. Right. But now we see more animals and more humans. That sounds <laughs> like it. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, now, we had to think about it. And so what we did was we dug a little bit deeper into it. And we said, all right, well, let's look at the timing of this. And I think this goes back to five or six years ago when I was the show we talked about centerization, is that um, in urban areas, wild animals tend to start avoiding humans and changing them te their temporal patterns. And that's what we saw on this really quick adaptation is that instead of coming out at dawn and dusk like they would normally come out, they're coming out in the middle of the night. And um, what kind of animals are we talking about? We're talking about foxes, the coyotes, raccoons, possums, you know, your typical urban animals. Um, the only thing that seemed to be a little bit of an uptick that also kind of fell with the same trend as humans were squirrels. <laughs> so, uh, those Why squirrels. would that be? You know, it could be easy as something as being fed, um, people having snacks out. And, you know, uh, every college campus I've ever been on, I've seen tons of squirrels. And it's usually because, you know, humans leave refuse everywhere. <laughs> and uh, it's easy for them to pick up nuts and seeds and popcorn and things of that nature. Um, so that was what was interesting. We did see an uptick in humans and we saw an uptick in animals. Um, if we took out the squirrels, then, you know, what we're seeing is um, a shift in temporal timing, our activity patterns and all the other animals. They were purposely trying to avoid, if you want to think about it anthropomorphically, they were trying to avoid humans. So they were coming and shifting their times. Um, I think in the middle of the day we found, you know, the warmest, nicest parts of the day was when we saw the most amount of human images. And that was when we saw the least amount of animals as well. So does that also mean that during normal times, non-pandemic times, humans would not have been in those natural spaces at dawn and dusk. And so they wouldn't have been interfering with these wild animals. Well, I've had cameras out on campus uh, for numerous different times. Um, and I'll tell you, there's people out there all the time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. What are they doing? <laughs> but they're out there. 
right. um, but um, but there's a lot less people, um, and so it's a lot quieter time. Um, and, and a lot of the animals I'm talking about, in terms of the coyotes and foxes, raccoons and uh, possums, they typically are more of those what we call crepuscular. They come out dawn dusk, and so it's not hard for them to shift farther into the night. And in urban areas on a no, uh, bigger cities, they try to shift and they try to avoid the light you know, things of that nature. Now, what's interesting is going back to those news articles about like, well, people, you know, not only did we think that there's anecdotal evidence that nature was taking back, but people were saying, well, no, I'm seeing a lot more of animals. And this brings me to one of those terms that I told you about um, when we talked last called um, environmental generational amnesia. And what that term is, is basically the baseline of what you perceive as normal in nature in terms of plant diversity, availability of plants, and same thing with animals, and availability and diversity of wildlife. What you perceive of that as you grow up sets a baseline in your head in terms of your perception. And... um, If you have a baseline as a younger person growing up and you spend some time outside and you're used to seeing deer and squirrels and rabbits or maybe you're used to hearing coyotes and foxes, especially this time of year because right now we're in January and you're going to hear them because it's mating season. Um, Then if you get older and you stop seeing those things, then at least you can detect a difference. Yeah. And so one of the things that I think is interesting globally with these anecdotal things of, oh, there's tons of animals out, is because we have evidence that humans aren't going outside and experiencing nature as much. Did they really see more? Or is it just that they're paying attention more? Because they're home, and they're taking that time to go out. Maybe, and again, like we said, because they're actually going outside to try to be with people in a time where we weren't allowed to be inside with anybody else. And so that's probably more of the case, is that we... You know, the people who don't have a baseline of how many things are out there normally went out finally and they said, oh, look at them all. I didn't know this was here. I've never seen a squirrel. I've never seen a rabbit or a possum over this area. And they think it's new. And so it can go. It's the opposite way of that amnesia. It's like, oh, look at that. There's wildlife when they're not paying attention to it on a normal basis. So this term environmental amnesia, is it? I mean, is this something that we need to be concerned about with the next generation? What I would say so. I mean, the 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 negative side of environmental um, amnesia is that um, you lose things before you realize they're even gone, right? So if you don't know what you're missing, how can you miss it, right? And so if we have generations that aren't going outside and aren't really taking in what's there, basically taking a mental picture of what the environment looks like and what nature looks like now, then how are they going to know as they get to be adults or you know, even older that we've missed anything? They're just going to continue on with their life and not think anything of it, right? It seems like the mainstream is really, I mean, we keep seeing, we see news articles about studies that are being done. The National Institutes of Health, as I said, did this whole review of that body of research and said, yeah, there's a strong correlation between amount of time spent outside and mental, physical, and cognitive health. So when we think about that in terms of what we're seeing now in this area, uh, I know when we 
initially spoke a week or so ago, you talked about a nature preserve near Poplar Grove in Pender County that recently was bought by a developer. What are what are your concerns about that? And are you seeing any other evidence that actual natural spaces are that aren't private land are, are going away? I, mean, I think anybody that lives in this area of North Carolina sees that, um, you know, that it, there's so much development at all times. We're one of the fastest growing areas in North Carolina. Um, and, you know, thinking about not only just Wilmington, but Leland, obviously, I think is one of the the second fastest growing town, I believe now. Um, you know, so Wilmington metropolitan area in general, just like any city is how it grows, is spreading and growing. And we're losing a lot of land. Um, so the nature preserve that I was talking about was um, Abbey uh, Preserve, Abbey Nature Preserve. Um, it's just over the northern boundary um, of New Hanover County and Depender County, and it's right next to Poplar Grove Plantation. And man, that was a gem. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I live up towards that way in New Hanover County, and when I discovered that, I was just like, this is an oasis. It is, you know, a little parking lot, and, you know, I don't know how big the area itself was to begin with, um, but there were so many just little walking trails. Um, there was a pond with a bridge. Um, you can take your dog walking. You can take your dog and let it go swimming for a little bit and get it very mucky and dirty, but they loved it. <laughs> you know, um, you know, and it, it was a way of getting out. And you can picture yourself out in the woods, maybe even western North Carolina where it's more rural, right, compared to the metropolitan area that we're living in. And it was a, a place to escape. Um, and now the the property owners sold part of it, and there's going to be residential areas to support the people that are moving to the area. And although they say that the trail systems themselves aren't going to be impacted, it's going to be built up around there. So, you know, I, I don't know what the plans are for the housing. I think I saw originally um, – you know, that they said they're going to try to have a conservation area and they recognize that this isn't a really important area for local residents. Um, but for me, it makes as a resident, just a resident, it makes me nervous because it's like, is it going to be the same? I used to be able to go there and escape and I could take a left turn here on this trail or a right turn. And you can just kind of zigzag through this area and feel like you got lost in the woods for an hour just for fun and just relax. And if you're every turn you're taking and you're seeing housing through the trees, how much of an experience is that? Um, We've also heard Roger Shu from UNCW and Andy Wood, a local naturalist. They've both talked about the importance of connected natural acreage for um, specific species like the red cockaded woodpecker and longleaf pine, as well as whole ecosystems. Can you kind of explain why that's important? And is there, I mean, when you have such a popular area, popular for humans, uh, and we'll get into this more certainly soon, but what are we losing? What do you see that we're losing? So in terms of the biological and ecological ecological sense, we're losing interior species. <laughs> so there are um, some interior species. Interior species. What are interior species? So we can lump uh, in ecology. We like to lump things into different categories, but it's all along a continuum. And an interior species is one that um, needs to have 
a relatively large habitat patch, a piece of land that's unbroken um, so that it can move around and not feel like it's, it's gone on edge. We talk about edges where, you know, maybe a grassland meets a forest or in our case in this area, a residential area meets a park, right? Um, it's an edge. It's an abrupt change in vegetation. It's an abrupt change in, you know, the structure of the plants and things like that. So, um, Depending on the species, um, you know, birds and how big the species is, is their perception of how much interior space there is. Now, if we're talking about a um, a snail that's an interior species, it doesn't need that much space because it might not go very far, right? But an interior species that's like a bird that can fly distances, well, then all of a sudden this place feels really cramped. I don't have enough room to move around to find all my resources. Um, so as um, we lose that connectivity and we start kind of breaking things up, it's called fragmentation of the landscape, um, we get more edge species and we get more or area insensitive species that, you know, are like, are okay. examples of those? Um, edge species tend to be the ones that we find in urban environments and th- particularly thinking about mammals and birds. Um, so your raccoons, your possums and things like that. Um, Interior species, um, I would say a bobcat, um, for most cases, would be an interior species. Now, there are places where they are adapting. Um, Kiowa Island in South Carolina has a huge bobcat population. <laughs> um, and so, What about black bear? Black bears need a lot of space. Um, they do not do well in urban areas. Um, they usually get drawn into urban areas because there's food resources. Um, so they'll come into – this is one of the things that uh, NC State actually has been sitting for several years now um, of looking to see if Ashbur- Asheville, um, North Carolina, is what we call an ecological sink for black bears, meaning that are the black bear populations coming in from the mountains and then they're not surviving in Asheville. And luckily, out in Asheville, they're not a sink. They're actually doing really well around Asheville, um, possibly because there's still a lot of natural areas throughout the area itself. Um, And there's also, they really rely on um, what food resources are happening in the mountains there, too. Are you, as we're seeing this development, are you getting more calls about just members of the public having interactions with local wildlife? Um, no. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to ask me a different question, actually. What did you think I was going to ask you? Um, I thought you were going to ask me, am I getting more calls about citizens being concerned about local development in their area? Are you? And I am. And um, What are people saying? It's it's the same story, actually. People are upset um, because a developer has purchased an area and they're going to clear cut it and they're going to either pack it with housing or put something commercial in it. And, you know, they value seeing the nature in their backyards or in their area. And it's the same concern that we've been talking about is that we're losing it. And so these are people usually who do have that perception of like what we have and where it's going and they're seeing the loss. Um, And so unfortunately, uh, my answer to them is you just have to keep on fighting and you have to keep on going with your neighbors to the planning board meetings and the commission and explaining why you want certain things. Uh, My neighbor 
neighbors, my my neighbors, we fought an area uh, several years ago um, because it was a cypress pond, and we won the first time, and then they clear cutted it the next time around, and we lost. And it was just like, it's um, it's disheartening for sure. But there are solutions. And we're going to talk about some of those solutions soon. But uh, just briefly, a cypress pond, also just forest land. I mean, that is a boon for when we have severe storms, mm-hmm. flooding. Are it's you, a it's a sponge. Um, yeah, and in particular, in my neighborhood, um, my next door neighbor was a victim of flooding. His house flooded in Florence. Um, so, and yeah. that was a new thing. And he was right next to a cypress pond that started getting developed. You're listening to Coastline. After this short break, something a little more heartening. UNCW professor and chair of the Environmental Sciences Department, Rachel Urbanik, will tell us about some things we can do to make spaces more wildlife friendly. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. UNCW wildlife biologist Rachel Urbanek studies urban wildlife management, the human dimensions of wildlife, and human wildlife conflict and resolution. As we see our local human population continue to grow, and as we see the research that shows nature and wildlife exposure is essential to mental and physical health, Professor Urbanek has some ideas about ways we can support nature and in so doing allow nature to support us. And Professor Urbanic, you said to me, if we want to have a relationship with the environment, and there are so many people in this area, you just told us in the last segment, you're getting lots of calls from people who are concerned that we're losing natural areas. You say we have to do something. So what can we do? So we can do things on multiple levels. Um, We can do things on an individual residential level. Um, and that is as simple as taking care of your own property to make it more wildlife friendly. And so simple things about doing that is um, planting native plants. So there's plenty of times throughout the year in at least New Hanover County that you can get native plants, whether it's through Tree Fest or whether it's through the native plant sale at the Arboretum. Um, and making sure that we have native plants in our yards. And then just having native plants actually doesn't cut it, though. You have to do it in a certain way. Um, What you want to do is cluster like ones together, so have little pockets of the same kind in areas. I know that, um, you know, most of the time with landscaping, you want to have, like, all this great diversity, but you can have diversity. You just diversify it in a different way in little groups. So you want to have different areas flowering at different times. So that things um, always have access to nectar, always have access to uh, fruits or berries. If you have any fruit-bearing bushes or plants or trees, 
Um, also having structure. And so when we think about structure in the ecological sense, we mean things like for in terms of plants, different levels, you know, whether we have some native grasses and then some bushes and then some shrubs or trees. So that there's different layers because animals actually use different parts of those layers of the plants in terms of some live up in the canopy where some like to live on the brush. And so the more different structural layers you have in your vegetation, the more likely you're going to have more wildlife. Um, having a lot of different flowering plants throughout the year, again, so seasonally, but then also spatially flowering um, helps. And then the reason why you want to kind of cluster things is that, so there's plenty of food resources, and so that they can actually all come to one area and say, eat there. Now, you have to be willing to let the animals eat your food, though. Okay? <laughs> so if you don't want the rabbits or the deer eating, um, then this might not be the best idea for you. But if you want to bring them in, and you just say, okay, you know, and you're getting perennial plants that are going to come back, and there's plenty of plants. Um, and the plant clinic over at the Arboretum can certainly help with this in terms of understanding what can you plant that not only will help the wildlife, but then also, you know, be sturdy enough that you're not replanting things every single year. Um, then if we kind of build that up, we can also have um, nest boxes. So bird boxes, but you can also have bat boxes. Um, think about how many mosquitoes we have. Instead of having the county spray for mosquitoes, we can put out bat boxes. Uh, bat, a single bat can eat a million mosquitoes in a night. What? <laughs> yes. Wait a minute. I've never heard that statistic. That's mind-bending. Yes. Say that again. A single bat can eat a million mosquitoes in a night. Um, and so the more bats we have the better it's going to be. <laughs> and so you don't have to spray mosquito spray, um, especially if we live in a wet area. If we have bats, then you're kind of getting rid of all of those things if we have something naturally taking care of it. Now, I've heard people say they, they're afraid of bats and they have phobias about them. What would you say to folks? I mean, it's, it's perfectly safe to have a bat box in your backyard. Why? It, bats, again, just like any other wildlife, are not coming at you. Um, people who say, um, you know, and I remember having these fears and hearing these fears when I was a kid, too. Um, same with snakes. A lot of people don't want snakes in their yards. Um, so, you know, people are afraid, well, bats will come down and they get tangled in your hair or come after you. Um, if bats come towards your head and you happen to be out at dusk or night when bats are out, then it's because there's mosquitoes over your head. So they're actually trying to help you. <laughs> so you should thank them. Um, now, if a bat gets in your house, that's a different thing. But most of the time, that's not going to happen unless you have, you know, you have your doors all open and windows with no screens and things like that. And, and for some reason they get in. <laughs> Why do we want to have snakes around? Uh, snakes eat rodents. Um, so any rats, any mice. Um, snakes keep down also um, other little critters as well. And so, um, you know, I know a lot of people are afraid of snakes as well, but um, and you have to be cautious. We have we have some venomous snakes. We have a good amount of venomous snakes in North Carolina. But, you know, a lot of the ones that's seem to be around people's houses, like rat snakes and racers. They're very, very harmless. Um, they look big, and they're especially racers, and they're fast, <laughs> um, which can be a little intimidating for people. But, you know, you just kind of let them go. Um, and they're going to run, again, another species that will slither away, not run, but slither away as fast <laughs> as possible. <laughs> Our friends without shoulders. Yes. So... Uh, Let's talk a little bit about cats. So many people listening have probably heard, ah, it's not good to have to let your cat go outside. And 
I mean, not only for the cat's health, but you were telling me about a study that put cameras on cats and was pretty revealing. What what did we learn from that study? Yeah, so I believe the study came out in 2019. It was from the University of Georgia. And what they did was they enlisted a whole bunch of people who had cats um, that let their cats go out at night. And they put these little cameras on them and they trained these mom and dads of cats, you know, to say this is how you put it on and this is where we want it. And, you know, this is how you're going to charge the camera every night. Um, and then as long as you just, you know, give us the filmage, we'll, we'll help you and we'll show you what your cat's been up to every night. <laughs> um, and so um, that was a pretty interesting study. And there's been a lot of cat studies in urban areas since then, but that was probably the biggest one in my mind that showed us that um, what cats bring back to you as their prize or their gift to you, like here's this little snake or here's this mouse or here's this bird, and maybe it's just once in a blue moon um, or maybe it's once a month, right? Um, What their paper said was that's actually only about a quarter of what they actually kill in the wild um, while they're out. And so you might be thinking, oh, well, they're eating it, right? And I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, my cat goes out, but it's so well fed. Well, cats are amazing predators, um, and they are one of the species, if not the only species, and we talked about this, and I'm really intrigued myself. I need to go down this rabbit hole to see if anything else uh, but cats kill for fun, um, and they don't eat it. They'll play around with it, and they'll be done with it, and they'll walk away. And that's one of these things that came out of that UGA study too. So um, that they kill for fun. They kill for fun. They're not. They're not actually eating it. Some. They're not eating it all the time. They're not bringing it back to their homeowner all the time. And so what we thought that cats do at night, our cats that are well fed and well taken care of, right, are just out there and they're doing their thing of what they're. They're they're sicko slasher thing. <laughs> okay, so the only other species that we know for sure that kills for fun are are um, humans who are mentally ill. So that said, what happens when cats leave seventy five percent of their kills just kind of lying around when the thing finally dies and it's not interesting anymore? What what's happening? Um, I would say like I've never followed a cat to do this, but logic and my my education would tell me that um, if you don't find it around your property or things like that, then a possum, a raccoon, a coyote, um, if it's during the day, then a vulture will be coming by and eating it. So um, could you argue that they're helping to feed the local wildlife population or are they attracting certain types of wildlife that we don't necessarily want around the house. I think it depends on the person, right? If you're a person who um, is upset that, you know, there's coyotes around and you're fearful for your cat, yet you let your cat out, then you you are actually putting your cat into danger, right? Um, and so you have to think about that. Like your cat's going out there, it's going to be predating on things and it might not eat it and it might not bring back. And then that might be uh, you know, a sign for other animals to come in that would then say, oh, I'm going to eat this mouse. And then look at that fat cat over there. <laughs> you know, that's a bigger meal, right? Um, on the other side of things is um, that the cats, domestic cats, um, since they're not native animal, they are competitors with our native predators. And so um, some things as simple as bobcats and foxes, they'll go and naturally eat our rodents as well. Our snakes will eat our rodents. Um, and so um, 
the things that they are eating or they are taking back and are disposing of, they are competing and taking away food resources from our wildlife. There's so many good reasons not to let your cat outside, not only for your for your cat's own sake, um, and not to even mention the decimation of the songbird population that we've heard about and which has been studied. You told me about something called the Chicago Wilderness Alliance. Mm-hmm. And this is something, why don't you tell us about how and when this started? Because this was a stunning idea to me since I think of the Chicago area as one of the larger metropolitan areas in the country. It is. I I believe it's still the third largest metropolitan area in the nation. Um, And I actually didn't know about this until I started doing my Ph.D. research um, back in 2007 um, in this area. Um, I thought to myself, all right, I'm going to do study deer in Chicago. You know, this will be interesting. Um, and what the Chicago Wilderness Alliance is, is it, it's multi-states. Um, it's basically where the Chicago metropolitan area exists. So including all the sprawling neighborhoods and suburban sprawl that makes up the Chicago as, you know, one one um, one giant area. It's not like just downtown Chicago. And so um, several of the counties, specifically starting in Illinois, um, that made up the beginning parts of as Chicago started to sprawl um, in 1950s. So think about this, you know, 70 years ago, right, um, put out referendums and they said, you know, we're going to put a tax referendum out, and we know that you pay county taxes on for helping you know the police and the firefighting, and for the schools and the roads. But how about adding a slightly more tax so that we can take some of the land as we know Chicago is developing, and put it aside for conservation? And so, if you look at some of the counties there, um, they all have a name differently. But one might be Forest Preserve District. One might be called a Conservation District. There's a bunch of them that are Forest Preserve Districts or Forest Conservation Districts. And it covers four states. Covers four even states. Even though it's one of the names is Chicago Wilderness Alliance. But but it's it's a huge regional it's a cooperative. Huge regional cooperative um, going up through Milwaukee all the way down to uh, Gary, Indiana, and uh, um, and the dunes. And so. And then spreading outward away from Lake Michigan. Um, and it was amazing. It, um, you know, it, it's amazing to People be— People supported this. They wanted this. They're still paying into it and still heavily supporting it. Um, you know, and, and to think about the fact that our third largest city in the nation has done this um, and provides this very, very accessible outdoor possibilities. And when I'm saying these conservation lands, um, they're not— like parks where it's a soccer field or a baseball field or things like that, they are conservation parks where there might be a trail around it and then there's a big area inside where, again, those interior species, going back to that, they can live in there. Um, There might be floodplains in there. Um, You know, they have some places that are more park-like where you have your sports complexes and things like that because every every place needs those. But, um, But a lot of them are just areas to walk and be out in nature. Um, and they have a lot of environmental education aspects, too, to get people to come out and reasons and say, well, you know, you know, what do I do if I go to one of these parks, right, or one of these preserves? Um, and so they have different ways of getting people out to say, hey, well, let's go for a bird walk or let's go for um, to listen to the frogs or let's go and you can learn about these different types of plants out here. I was, I was looking. It's just so... 
hard to believe in some ways that there would just be massive support for this over decades. So I was looking for controversy about the idea, if anything had sprung up. And I found people up in arms about the preserves deciding to sell some of its acreage to an airport for a runway. So it was the opposite of the kind of controversy (laughs) that I thought I was going to find. There is still people are really committed to this in the Midwest. It's amazing. You mentioned biophilic cities. What are these? So um, the first time I heard the term of a biophilic city, um, it was in conjunction with Singapore. Um, and um, if anybody listening, and you, Rachel, like just Google Singapore and biophilia. Um, what biophilia means is love of life, okay? If you break down the Latin, Singapore is the model biophilic city. Um, I show pictures to my students when I'm introducing this topic and I say, is this real or is this photoshopped? You know, and they're all like, oh, that's photoshopped. Oh, no, that's not real. Or that one might be real. But it's just like vegetation growing on the sides of buildings so thick that it's like shrubs and trees can grow out of it. So we're not just talking about green rooftops. We're talking about living walls of buildings. We're talking about walkable communities where you, you know, Know, actually can access everything that you need. So going back to that time where you have a main street and a town center and you can actually access things and see your neighbors but also get out in nature too. Now in the United States, um, this is slowly over years becoming more of a trend. And uh, before I came here, I was thinking to myself, I was thinking about biophilic cities and I was like, you know, I haven't looked on their website. It's biophiliccities.org, um, an international organization. And um, I said, I wonder if any North Carolina cities have come up on here. And Raleigh actually joined them in 2022. And I wrote down a few stats that I was really impressed about. Um, So Raleigh, the few times I've been up there and and I've been sitting in traffic, (laughs) you know, I have looked around and I said, you know, there are greenways and things like that. But um, they've got over 6,000 acres of parkland, 118 miles of trails, and almost 4,000 acres of greenway. And we're going to post links and resources for all of this stuff so people can check it out and see exactly what you're talking about. That's this edition of Coastline. Dr. Rachel Urbanic of UNCW's Environmental Sciences Department, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org, where you'll also find those links and resources. You can also find this wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.